So we're in our fourth week of studying the book of Ephesians. It's actually a letter that a Jewish apostle by the name of Paul wrote to Gentile churches all around the world. And basically what Ephesians is about, it's about the grace of God and how we should live in response to it. And as we studied chapter 1 just a couple of weeks ago, we caught an exclusive glimpse into where history is headed. Paul said basically to us, this is not common knowledge, but the day is coming when God will unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. He said it's God's plan to bring unity to this planet, in fact, to the whole universe. But one of the many indications that God's peace plan is still a work in progress is the sight of so many physical barriers between different groups of people around the world. Whether it's the 700 miles of walls and fencing on our border with Mexico, built to keep foreigners from entering our country illegally, or the Detroit 8-mile wall, constructed in 1941 to keep black homeowners out of white neighborhoods, or the Belfast peace walls, built in 1969 and reinforced since then by both Protestants and Catholics to keep each other out of their neighborhoods, or the West Bank barrier, a 440-mile patchwork of walls and fences built in Israel, by Israel in the first decade of this century to keep Palestinians out. See, all of these different walls remind us of the sad fact that bitter divisions exist between so many different groups of people. No doubt this breaks the heart of God. And even though we may never have put up a physical barrier between ourselves and other people, is it possible that we who are a part of this unity movement that Jesus started have in some way contributed to the reconstruction of walls that Jesus died to break down. The long passage that begins in verse 11 of Ephesians 2 and continues all the way to verse 13 of chapter 3 is all about walls. And if the Spirit of God has His way with us today, we will leave with gratitude for the removal of a wall that we may not even have known existed. And we also may leave with a heart of repentance for rebuilding a wall that Jesus broke down. Normally, I wouldn't attempt to teach such a large chunk of Scripture in a single message, but I think it's appropriate today because there's really just one big idea in these verses that Paul just hammers away at verse after verse. I'm going to read all 25 verses straight through. And as I do that, I want you to try to identify the, the big idea. Okay, so listen carefully. Pick it out. Paul, the Jewish apostle, writing to his Gentile readers, he said, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. I told you it's a long passage. But what was it, as you were listening, think about this, what was it that Paul wanted his readers to be encouraged about? What was it that God did that absolutely blew Paul's mind? Well, he offered salvation to everyone, not just to Jews. Now, I know that we who are Gentiles, which simply means that we're not Jewish, we hear that and we think, well, duh, what else would you expect God to do? What's the big deal about Gentiles becoming Christians? But you have to understand that what we take for granted now was a bombshell in the first century. After all, the Scriptures had said 
to Jews in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. And in Amos 3, He said, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Most Jews interpreted those words to mean that God loved them and them only. Even though when he appeared to the father of their nation, Abraham, he had said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, when God said, you're my chosen people, what he meant was that he chose Israel to be the channel of his love and of his blessings to the entire world, the hose, if you will, through which his love would water the earth. But they saw themselves more like a bucket instead of a hose, as recipients of His love, but not as redistributors of it. Being chosen by God did not, did not make them think of outreach, but it sure did stroke their ego. And over time, their animosity toward non-Jews, toward Gentiles, grew. They called them dogs. When Jews returned to Israel, after traveling outside its borders, they shook the dust off their sandals so as not to contaminate the Holy Land with Gentile dust. It was against the law to aid Gentile women in childbirth because to do so would be to bring another despised Gentile into the world. If a Jew married a Gentile, the Jewish family would conduct a funeral because to them their child was dead. Some Jews said that Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Even the Jewish temple, the place where God localized His presence on planet earth, was defiled by racism. In Isaiah 56, written some 700 years B.C., God said that the offerings of Gentiles who love and serve Him would be accepted on His altar, and that His temple would be called a house of prayer for all nations. That altar, it was located right in front of the entrance to the Holy of Holies, that cube-shaped room in which God Himself sat on what was called the mercy seat. Now, obviously, uh, it wasn't, that was more of a... Um, what would we call it, like a manifestation of God. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere in all of His fullness at the same time. He's not restricted to one location. But that temple, in, fa in, in fact, that, that mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, in the center of that temple, that was where people who wanted to get close to God went. They wanted to get as close to that location as they could. And God said that that's where Gentiles were as welcome as Jews were. The Babylonians destroyed the Jewish temple in 586 B.C., but when King Herod rebuilt it in the years just before Jesus began his ministry, he leveled off uh, this massive area all around the temple. Um, it, it was 35 acres in all, and he built the outer wall of the, the temple area on the perimeter of this huge area that came to be called the Court of the Gentiles. So Gentiles were welcome to get somewhat close to God. However, the court of the Gentiles was lower in elevation 
and further from the Holy of Holies than Jews were allowed to go. It was 14 steps up to the Jewish courts. And there was a wall five feet high all the way around those steps. You can just barely see it in that picture, the wall in front of the steps. Um, it, it had signs posted at all 12 entrances through that wall. And it said to Gentiles, if you go any further, you will be responsible for your own death. The death penalty for a Gentile to, go, to get any closer to the Holy of Holies. It was a physical barrier that reinforced the Jews' insistence that Gentiles were not among God's chosen people. They were, to use Paul's words in verse 12 of chapter 2, separate from Christ, that is, from the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah is coming to, to, to save His people, but you're not in that group. Messiah is not for you. They were excluded, Paul says, from citizenship in Israel. They were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. See, God made several covenants or agreements with Israel, including the Mosaic covenant, the agreement that if the people of Israel would keep God's law, the law that was given to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, if they would keep that law, they would be God's treasured possession. And that wall between Jews and Gentiles in the temple came to be associated with God's law. It's like the Jews were saying, God put laws on stone tablets for us, not for you, so we're in and you're out. You're without hope. You're without God in the world. Even Gentiles who made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to pray in the temple were kept behind the wall. And then Jesus came into the temple, to the court of the Gentiles, actually. And He saw this crowded marketplace where there should be a sanctuary for prayer. So He drove out those merchants with a whip. And He said, how dare you turn my father's house into a den of robbers? A reference to Jeremiah 7, where God condemned Israel for worshiping, worshiping Him with their lips while their hearts were far from Him. And in so many different ways, Jesus taught the Jewish people that they had broken the Mosaic covenant. They didn't keep God's law. They broke it. They violated the agreement. And so actually, it wasn't just the Gentiles who were walled off from God. So were the Jews. Everybody's behind the wall, Jesus said. And after he had made it clear that all people had sinned and therefore cut themselves off from God, what did he do? Well, he offered on the altar of the cross a blood sacrifice for all sins. He poured out his own blood for the sins of Jews and the sins of Gentiles. And when he died, verse 14 of chapter 2 says that he destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, not just hostility between Jews and Gentiles, but also the hostility between all people and God. He did it by setting aside in His flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Once the law had exposed our sin, it had done its work, and Jesus set it aside. And the Scripture says that when He died, the curtain, there, there was this curtain in front of the Holy of Holies. So if you walked into the temple and, and you knew that there was the mercy seat back there, there was this curtain, uh, this, this veil that separated people from the holiness of God. 
And you didn't go past the curtain. Well, once a year the high priest did, but with a lot of fear and trembling and with a blood sacrifice. But when Jesus died, the Scriptures say that that, 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 that veil, that curtain, was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you understand what that breach symbolized? It meant that suddenly God was accessible. God was approachable. You didn't have to be afraid of Him anymore. You could go right to Him. And there was this earthquake in Jerusalem, it says in Scripture. Imagine that earthquake causing that that wall, that dividing wall in the temple to crumble to the ground like Jericho's wall. And imagine all of these people, Jews and Gentiles, walking over the rubble toward the Holy of Holies, which is no longer obstructed in any way. That's the picture that Paul is painting in this passage. Do you see it in verse 13? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Near, near to who? Near to God. In verse 16, in one body, Jesus reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross. And verse 18, for through Him, through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And then chapter 3, verse 12, in Him, in Christ, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Isn't that great news? There's no wall. There's not so much as a curtain that stands between us and God. That's the gospel, and it's for everyone. It's for those who consider themselves near to God, and it's for those who know that they are far from God. In other words, it's a message for Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus made that so clear to His apostles who all happened to be Jewish, right? All the first followers of Jesus were Jewish, and He gave His his apostles this great commission after His resurrection. What did He say? He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in My name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, but not ending there. No, no, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Is there anything unclear about that? No. So what did the apostles do? Oh, they preached the gospel in Jerusalem and nowhere else. It took the martyrdom of Stephen and a great persecution against the church for Christians to finally spread out. That happened in Acts 8. And the apostles, the ones who heard the Great Commission from the lips of Jesus Himself, were not among that that scattering out. They all stayed right there in Jerusalem, continued to preach the gospel to their fellow Jews. And then in Acts 9, the next chapter, a Jewish zealot, a Pharisee by the name of Saul, was on a mission to silence Christians by any means necessary. When he was knocked to the ground and blinded by the resurrected Messiah on the road to Damascus. And no sooner had he put his faith in Jesus than he was appointed by God to be a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. Saul became Paul. And he wrote right here in Ephesians 3, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Could God have given that assignment to any more ethnocentric Jew than Paul? 
And then in the very next chapter of the book of Acts, Simon Peter, another kosher Jew, was praying to God on the roof of his house, and God gave him this vision. Actually, he gave him the same vision three times in a row. He showed these, these animals being, being let down toward him. They were all unclean animals. That means that Jews were not allowed to eat, of, uh, eat the flesh of these animals. And he was commanded. He heard the voice of God say, kill and eat. And Peter said, no way. Uh, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times. And then there was a knock at the door. And before Peter could answer it, that same voice said to him, there are three men outside. I want you to go with them. And so he did. Guess where they took him? to a Gentile house. (laughs) And you know what Peter said when he was invited inside? This is humorous. He said in Acts 10 to these people that invited him to come, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But then he swallowed hard and choked out the words, but God has shown me that I should not call anything impure or unclean. So here I am. What do you want? Do you detect an attitude? Their response was essentially this. We want to hear from your lips what God commanded you to tell us. And what had God commanded Peter and the other apostles to tell everyone? That Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead and that, that they could receive eternal life as a free gift if they put their faith in Him. And so Peter shared that good news with them. And when they believed it, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak, they began to praise God in languages that they had never learned, just as had the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. That's what it took for Peter to get it through his thick skull that Jesus died for Gentiles as well as Jews. Of course, he was then called on the carpet by his colleagues, Jewish colleagues, They said, what's this we hear about you rubbing shoulders with uncircumcised Gentiles? He said, I I know, I know, but I had these three visions, and, you know, I heard God telling me not to call anything impure, and then these three guys knocked on my door, and God told me to go with them, and they brought me to this house full of Gentiles who practically begged me to share the gospel with them, and when I did, there was like this rerun of the day of Pentecost. What could I do? Who was I to oppose God? And the Scripture says that when they heard this, they said, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Will wonders never cease? That's the background of this passage that we are studying. It's why Paul was so astonished about this truth that probably doesn't even register for us emotionally, because we're over the whole Jew-Gentile thing. Well, maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe we should stop and thank God that in His grace, He made even us His chosen people. But still, is this passage relevant to us in any other way? Well, let me ask you this, those of you who know that there's no wall between you and God. Are there any walls between you and any other subgroup of Jesus' followers? Is there a a group of Christians for whom you feel disgust rather than unity 
you know that Jesus tore down those walls too, don't you? And to Paul, that was just as significant as the removal of the wall between us and God. Look at all the ways Paul said that Christians of different stripes have been reconciled with each other. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. Now think about this. Don't just think about it in terms of Jews and Gentiles. Think about it in terms of you and those in that other group. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Then verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I heard a story about a group of soldiers whose friend was killed in battle, and they brought his body to a Roman Catholic church, hoping to bury it in the cemetery outside. And the priest who was there said that he was required to ask them if their friend was Roman Catholic. They said, we don't know. And he said that he was sorry, but that he could not permit them to bury him in a Catholic cemetery. And so the soldiers buried their friend right next to the fence, on the, on the other side of the fence from the cemetery. And then they came back the next day to try to go to the graveside, and they couldn't find it. They looked all over the place. They said, we know we put it right there on the other side of the fence. Where is it? And so they went and they asked the priest about it, and the priest said that he had spent the first half of the night feeling guilty about what he had told them, and the other half moving the fence to include that soldier. Gosh, I don't know if that's a true story or a fictional one, but it hits me in the heart because it's so much what God did. When Jesus died, he brought all of us inside the fence. And then Paul used an even more profound word picture. He said that, that we're bonded to other Christians, that, that, that we are cemented together. That word household at the end of verse 19, you are members of his household. That refers to people inside the house of God. But then in verse 20, Paul uses the house itself as a metaphor. He says, the house of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Isn't that a great word picture? We, all of us, with all of our diversity, are living stones in the temple that God Himself occupies. There's a church in Sicily called the Palermo Cathedral that took 715 years to complete. Actually, it was kind of more like a main farmhouse where every generation there's an addition. That's kind of the way that that it was. Um, But by the time the cathedral was completed in 1801, it was a blend of five different architectural styles. So as the architectural styles changed over the years, the church actually reflected that. I think that's a great picture of what God intended the church to be. One temple made up of every people group, beautiful because of the diversity within the unity. But we've not just been reconciled with those who used to be on the other side of the wall and bonded with them. We've actually been blended with them, fused together, if you will. 
Look again at chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, look at it at the end, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. An early church leader by the name of Chrysostom wrote, it is as if one should melt down a statue of silver and a statue of lead and the two should come out as gold. Or it's kind of like a couple that has a baby. Um, Ask anyone on our side of the family who our granddaughter Maddie looks like and they'll all say, they'll all say, well, she looks just like Sean. And sure enough, we've, we've taken out pictures, little pictures of Sean when he was a baby. And we go, oh, doesn't she look like Sean looked when he was a baby? But I know that at the same time, people on Kim's side of the family are looking at Kim's baby pictures and saying, well, she's a spitting image of her mom. Well, who's right? Both families. Because Maddie is a fusion of Sean and Kim. She's the best of both. Well, God has taken all these different types of people and fused them together to create something new, something better. You know what He calls it? The church. See, we hear the word church and we go, "Mm, I'm not sure. I have some good feelings, some bad feelings about the church. It might not even affect us emotionally at all. But to Paul and to his contemporaries, that word church is like, if you see it in a sentence, it would have like, Rays of sun coming out of it. That word meant so much to them. In chapter 3, verse 9, he called the church a mystery that for ages past was kept hidden in God. And in verse 10, he says that God's intent was that now through the church, ah, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's like, look, all of, all of the heavenly creatures, look at what I've done. We're calling it the church. See, it's part of God's peace plan. It's the first phase of His intention. She said back in chapter 1, verse 10, it's His his intention to bring all things in heaven and on earth into unity under Christ. That's what the church is. As people come from near and far to the God who has removed every barrier between us and Him, we find ourselves in a beautiful blend of humanity, shoulder to shoulder with people who used to be on the other side of the wall, worshiping our Father together. That's what grace does. So why do we keep building walls? No sooner did Jewish Christians marvel over the inclusion of Gentiles in the church than a faction of them started insisting that if Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they had to become Jewish converts first. They settled that argument in Acts 15, but how many churches are there today in which Jews and Gentiles worship together? I mean, an equal mix. We're not mad at each other, but the unity that we claim to have in Christ Is it the kind of unity that God envisioned? Churches in America, for the most part, are still racially divided. In 1960, Martin Luther King Jr. said that it is one of the shameful tragedies of our nation that Sunday morning is the most racially segregated part of every week. Here it is, 63 years later. 
why are there still so few racially integrated churches? Why do Catholics and Protestants still worship separately and in some parts of the world kill each other? You might say, well, well, I didn't build any of those walls. I'm good with Jews and Gentiles, whites and blacks, Catholics and Protestants worshiping together. Okay. But how are you doing with professing Christians whose political views you despise? That's the most obvious divide in the American church today. It's between Republicans and Democrats. Matt Chandler said that Christians in America used to choose their church based on theology, but now they do so based on political ideology. Is that what God had in mind? I think the Spirit of God would say to those who attend red churches and to those who attend blue churches and to those who attend churches that avoid politics, you have been reconciled with, you've been bonded to, you've been fused together with those Christians whose politics you despise. Jesus died to break down every wall, every wall. Are you willing to work for peace? Will you confess and renounce self-righteousness and hatred? Will you build bridges instead of walls? Will you redirect the time and energy it takes to bolster your political views to pursuing intimacy with Jesus? Let's stand and pray. Oh, Jesus, how can we ever thank you enough for paying the ultimate price to break down every wall? We know that we can't, but at least we can um, pledge not to put any walls back up, and we can beg you to help us follow through on that desire. And so we do that. Give us the grace to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In your name we pray. Amen.